Shalom. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Ruben, and I am a small business owner in the city of Capernaum. I own a, a fish stand on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. It's, uh, it's just a small business, and until a few years ago, my main supplier was a company called John and Sons Fish Company. Now it's just called John's Fish Company. Now you may know uh, the Sons, you may have heard their names before, Simon and Andrew. I think Simon mostly goes by the name Peter these days. You may know him by that name. But as I said, I had this business arrangement with them, and things were going really well for a while there. And then all of a sudden, the two sons, Simon and Andrew, just take off. You see, this rabbi had come, and he was talking to them, and uh, they're standing on their boat, and, and he's saying to them, you know, if you just follow me, I can help you to fish for people instead of for fish. And they did it. They just dropped their nets and jumped over the side of the boat and started following. Well, that was a few years ago, and from time to time I have the opportunity to catch up with Simon and with Andrew and just kind of see how things are going. Well, the last time that we got together, we actually talked for quite some time about the changes that I had seen in Simon because, see, Simon was one of those guys that you would describe as rough around the edges. I mean, really rough. And I had seen so much change happen in him, and he said that it was because of what he was learning from this rabbi, although he doesn't even call him a rabbi anymore. He calls him the Messiah. Now, for those of you who are Gentiles, what he means by that is that this man is the promised redeemer of the nation of Israel, the one foretold by our prophets. Well, I'm not sure if I'm ready to buy into that or not yet, but I was intrigued enough that when Simon asked me to come and check things out for myself, I decided to do it. So I left my fish stand with my cousin Jacob and decided to follow along. And by the time I caught up with them, it was about two weeks later in the city of Bethany. And when I arrived there, Yeshua, this rabbi, I think you know him by his name today, Jesus. Well, Yeshua was telling these stories. And these weren't just any stories, not kind of like the stories that your parents told you when you were growing up or stories that you may tell your kids. I mean, these stories had deep meaning. And even beyond that deep meaning that you would see as you just kind of listen, if you really look past and look deep into that message, you would see some really deep thoughts and questions that would really challenge you. I remember he told uh, uh, some, he called these parables. And he told a, a parable about ten bridesmaids and about these three guys that worked for a financial analyst. And I wasn't really paying close attention to the stories because I was more intrigued by the one who was telling the stories. He had this way of looking at people. Well, I guess I should say looking at me. 
he would look directly into my eyes, and it was like he was looking past my eyes to my soul. And he could see past all of the the walls that I put up. You guys do that too, don't you? We put up these walls so that people only see the things that we want them to see. Well, he saw past all of that and, and saw me for who I was. He saw beyond my actions and my words to my thoughts and my intentions. And yet I didn't feel judged. I didn't feel condemned. Let me see if I can explain this a little bit better. You know, on, uh, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, we come that one day of year with our sacrifices that are supposed to be accepted by God and, and bring forgiveness for all of our sins. And yet even the next day when we're leaving after those sacrifices, we know that next year we're going to have to come back and offer these sacrifices again. Well, when Yeshua was looking at me into my soul, I felt like he was saying, it's going to be okay. There's going to be a way, and it's not going to have to happen every year. This is going to be good for all time and for all of your sins and for all people. I guess it's kind of like on Judgment Day when... I've always imagined that as when the God who sees, El Roy, when he looks at us and he sees to the very core of who we are and yet still accepts us. Well, it's about six days before Passover now, and uh, we've all been invited, all of us who are following Yeshua, we've been invited to this house for a, a feast and I'm really looking forward to it because it's the home of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Yeah, that Lazarus. You remember that story? The guy that died and was buried in the tomb for three days, and Yeshua brings him back to life? Well, believe it or not, he wasn't the sibling that everybody was paying attention to that day. And it wasn't Martha either, even though she's the most incredible hostess I've ever met. Now, the sibling who ended up getting the attention that day was Mary, the quiet one. See, she went into her room at one point, and she got this container of perfume. I was told it was really expensive stuff. I, I think somebody said it was called spikenard. And it probably took her more than a year to save up enough money to get this. And she comes before Yeshua And before we can figure out what she's planning on doing, she kneels down and she pours this over his feet. And we're all just thinking, what in the world is she doing? And then I hear one of the disciples say, I think I heard that it was uh, the treasurer of the disciples. He said, what are you doing? I mean, that's really expensive stuff. We could have sold that and put it in our treasure. We could have given it to poor people to feed them for a long time. Well, I think I kind of agree with the guy. It did seem like a waste, or at least not the best use of money. But I think Yeshua knew what all of us were thinking. Because even though none of us said it out loud, he said, don't condemn her. You'll always have poor people with you. 
but you're not always going to have me. And what she's done is she's prepared me for my burial. This is the first time I've ever heard him talk about his death. I guess I just figured that he'd always be around. Well, on Sunday, we all decide that it's time to start moving towards Jerusalem, getting ready for Passover. And as we're getting close to uh, Bethphage, you'll enjoy this. Yeshua tells two of his followers to go into town ahead of us. And he says, as soon as you get in there, you're going to find this donkey tied up at somebody's house. And I want you to just untie it and take it and bring it back to me. Well, I'll tell you what, if somebody came to my house and started untying my donkey and taking off with it, they'd be looking at the business end of my walking stick before they got very far. Well, it happened just like he said. They got there and they untied this donkey. I mean, they're probably looking at each other like, I can't believe this is just like he said it would be. They untie it, they bring it back to us, we meet up, they say it happened just like you said, Yeshua. And then Jesus, or Yeshua, he gets onto this donkey and he starts riding in towards Jerusalem. And it's kind of like, you know, those Old Testament stories where the king is riding in to the capital. And before I know what's happening, people are taking off their cloaks and throwing them on the ground so that the donkey doesn't even have to walk on the dirt. And other people are, are beginning to take off their outer garments and throw them down. And, and those that didn't have one or maybe had already thrown it down, they're grabbing palm branches and throwing them on the ground. And then I hear this guy over here yell, Hosanna! Hosanna to the, the son of David! Hosanna in the highest! This is from one of the Psalms that speaks of our Messiah. And, and then everybody's yelling, Hosanna! And I kind of got caught up in it as well. And I'm shouting Hosanna. And everybody's yelling this as he's getting closer and closer to the entrance of the city of Jerusalem. And of course, with all this commotion and all of this yelling, guess who met us at the city gates? The religious leaders did. They didn't like Yeshua from the beginning. But when they met us at the gates, you know that little vein that shows up right there in the middle of your forehead when you're really mad. They all had that. And they're, they're trying to shout above our shouting so that they could be heard. And, and they said, they finally yelled loud enough, Rabbi, you need to make them stop. You need to make them shut up. Well, he kept riding in, and when we got to the temple, he started telling some more stories. There was one about the widow's might, and um, you know he, he's talking to the Gentiles as well as, as to us who are part of the children of Israel, which is really hard to explain. And, and then when we get to the temple in that outer court, the one that's reserved for the Gentiles, the only place in the temple they're allowed to go, by the way, and he gets in there, and instead of being a place for them to worship, there are these tables set up, and, and they've got uh, sacrificial animals set on them, and of course there are little cash registers as well, and they were selling them at these exorbitant inflated prices. 
trying to make a buck on people that had come to worship God. And Yeshua, he was so angry, but this was righteous indignation. And before I knew what was happening, tables were flying everywhere, and feathers were up in the air, and money is going across the room. And he said, you have turned this place of worship for the Gentiles into a den of thieves. I've never met a rabbi who gave a widow's mite about the Gentiles. Well, you would think that he would keep a low profile after all of that, but he just sat down in the temple and began telling more of these stories about two sons and about a vineyard and a wedding reception. And the Pharisees just wouldn't give up. They come to to him and say, what right do you have to be doing these things? I think what they really meant was, Who told you you could do this? Because we certainly didn't tell you you could do it, and you need to stop. Now, he did what I've seen some wise people do before when they've been asked a ridiculous question. He said, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. And that kept them quiet, at least for a little ways. You know, I'm beginning to wonder about these religious leaders. I've always looked up to them, but his wisdom is far superior than theirs. Well, soon they were asking questions again, and and they were asking questions about taxes, like, should we pay taxes to Rome? Well, even I could answer that question. They, They asked, what's the greatest commandment? You, you've heard that story about, uh, Uh, five Pharisees who were asked what the greatest commandment is, and how many answers do you get? Thirteen. One for each of the twelve tribes and one for the half-tribe of Manasseh. Well, and then there's another group of religious leaders that come in and say, Rabbi, when we're in heaven, who's going to be married to who? I mean, if somebody's been married several times. These are the Sadducees. They don't even believe in the afterlife. Well, I need to to move on. Much of the middle of that week has become a blur, but there is something that I need to share with you, something very disturbing and despicable and evil. You remember when I told you about the disciples' treasurer? Well, I found out a little bit more about him. Uh, His name is Judas Iscariot, And remember when he was at Lazarus' house and he was saying that the money should have been given to the poor people? I really don't think he was that all concerned with poor people. I think what he was really concerned about was money. Well, at this point, I'm starting to hear rumors about our religious leaders. They are so intent on keeping Yeshua quiet. The rumor is that they have decided to put a contract out on him. The highest, most religious people in our land involved in contract killing. What's this world coming to? Well, it's, it's made me wonder, why would Judas do this? 
I've heard a couple of theories. One theory is that it was for the money. But really, I mean, Yeshua was such a high-profile person that if it was about money, he could have gotten far more than 30 pieces of silver. Another rumor is that when Judas Iscariot joined the rest of us in following Yeshua, he thought that it was because he was the Messiah, but in a different way. He thought that he was going to be setting up an earthly kingdom and overthrowing the Roman government. And after spending three years with Yeshua, he had decided, I don't think this is what's going to happen. And, and feeling like he had wasted three years and the bitterness that came along with that, he decided that he would betray Yeshua. I've heard one more theory, and I need you just to think about this because I, I realize it's a bit out there, but let me share it with you. Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. Now, I know that sounds kind of crazy, but I think it makes the most sense. Well, it's time for the Passover, and so we're looking for a place to have the Passover meal, and, and none of us have a place in Jerusalem. And you remember what Yeshua did with the donkey thing? He did it again. He sends a couple of guys ahead of us and says, I want you to go to this house and go upstairs, just walk in and tell the owner, the master has need of this room. His time has come. We're going to have the Passover supper here. No questions asked. We just walk up there and it happens, just like he said. I can't believe the stuff this guy gets away with. Well, those of you who our Gentiles may need a little bit of a refresher on what the Passover is all about. See, we go way back to the time of our great leader Moses, and all of our people were enslaved under Pharaoh in Egypt. And Moses, through the work of Yahweh, leads them out of slavery, out of that condemned life, and into freedom, into the promised land. And so every year, about this same time, we celebrate that as a way to remember what happened all those years ago. And now, the meal that Yeshua and his disciples had together, that's also become a time and a way for his followers to remember how he led them out of their condemned life, out of their slavery to sin. So if you've become a follower of Yeshua, I'd like for you to celebrate with me tonight. I have some friends back here who are going to come and, and bring some bread and, and something to drink. And if you'll just hold on to that until everybody has it, and then I'm going to share with you uh, some of the words that Yeshua said. And in preparation for this, I want to uh, read a prayer to you from the Psalms. So if you would pray with me. The heavens declare the glory of Elohim, and the sky displays what His hands have made. The teachings of Yahweh are perfect, they renew the soul. The testimony of Jehovah Jireh is dependable, it makes gullible people wise. 
the instructions of Jehovah and Kadash are correct. They make the heart rejoice. The command of Jehovah Shalom is radiant. It makes the eyes shine. The fear of Jehovah Rophe is pure. It endures forever. The decisions of El Shaddai are true. They are completely fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even the drippings from a honeycomb. As your servant, I am warned by them. There is great reward in following them. Then I will be blameless, and I will be free from any great offense. May the words from my mouth and the thoughts from my heart be acceptable to you, O Adonai, my rock and my Messiah. When Yeshua had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Yeshua took the cup and he said, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Messiah's death until the second coming. After that supper, Yeshua spoke to his disciples, and the things that he said were hard to hear. He said, one of you is going to betray me. And all of them just thought, he can't mean me. I remember Simon telling me, he said, Lord, you don't mean me, do you? I would never do that. And even a little bit further on, he said, tonight all of you will abandon me. And at that point, Simon said, not I, Yeshua, even if I have to die, I will not abandon you. And that's when Simon heard some of the hardest words he would ever hear in his life. Because Yeshua told him, but before a rooster crowed later that night, that Simon would betray him three times. Well, they, they left, but before they left, I don't think anybody really noticed this, that maybe just out of the corner of their eye, Judas Iscariot left the room. I think they remembered later what had happened. But Yeshua took the disciples, at least the ones that were remaining, he took them to the Mount of Olives, one of his favorite places. He loved to get away there and, and pray. And, and when they arrived in this special place, he told all of the rest of them, except for a few, I want you to stay here and wait for us. And he turned to Simon and James and John, those were the ones that he called the Thunder Boys. And he said, I want you to come with me. And they went on a little bit further, and he stopped, and he said, I want you to wait here, stay alert, and pray for me because I'm in anguish in my spirit. And then he left them there, and he went a little bit further to pray. And when he came back, they weren't praying. They were snoring. So he woke them up, and he said, this is really important. I need you to be alert and to stay awake and to pray for me. And he went away again. And when he came back, it was the same thing. Now, I can't say that I, I can really blame them because when I think about it, when I've decided to spend time in prayer, how many times has my mind wandered? How many times have I fallen asleep? Well, it wasn't more than a few moments after that that out of the dark shadows came Judas Iscariot, followed by a bunch of soldiers and guards, and they, he came up to Yeshua, and he greeted him warmly. But it wasn't because he was glad to see him. It was the sign that he was using to betray Yeshua to these 
soldiers that may not have known him. Why was he arrested? They never said why. There was never any explanation of it. But you know what happened? Simon, he was always so brash. He reaches into his outer garment and he pulls out this sword and he just goes charging and wildly swings at the first man he comes across and chopped off his ear. I don't think he scared anybody. First of all, the guy wasn't a soldier. He wasn't armed. And as soon as his ear was cut off, Yeshua reached down and picked it up and put it right back on. And he told Simon, listen, if I really needed somebody to protect me, I could have called 12 legion of angels to come to my side. A legion, that's about 6,000 or so, maybe more. So if I do the math, that means 12 times 6,000 or more, that's about 72,000 angels that Yeshua could have called. Now, if you remember the stories that were recounted by Isaiah, our prophet, he said that one angel killed 185,000 men in one night. So if one angel can kill 185,000 men in one night, then doing the math, 12 legion or 72,000 plus angels could have killed 13 billion people in one night. That's about double the amount of people that live on earth during your time. I think what Yeshua was telling Simon was, I don't need your puny little rusty sword to cut off a servant's ear. This is going according to my plan. And it was after that that they led him off to the high priest's quarters. And every one of us ran in the opposite direction. And as they took Yeshua to Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, they spent a lot of time trying to find two people that could tell a corroborating story. Because, see, it's in our law that it can't just be one person who comes and makes an accusation and it sticks. It has to be two people who tell their story separately and they have to agree. And they finally found two men who could do that But we all know those men. They're known to be liars, and they'll do anything for a price. So when they they made their accusations, Yeshua didn't even answer them. Well, after hours of trying to find somebody to, or several somebodies, to give accusations that would match up, Caiaphas just turns to him and he says, Listen, last Sunday, all of these people were saying you're the Messiah. What do you have to say about that? And he said, it's like you said. Well, that's when things began to make a lot of sense. And and I'm wondering, if he's the Messiah, then that means he's the Son of God. But what the chief of priests was thinking was, blasphemy. And he tore his robe. And he says, we don't need any other witnesses. This guy's condemning himself. He's claiming to be God. Well, for those of you that don't understand what blasphemy is, it's when somebody claims to be or be equal to God. 
But if you're the Messiah, then you are equal to God. So you're not committing blasphemy, you're telling the truth. Well, Simon had gathered enough courage, he was the only one that did, that he followed at a safe distance and was standing in the courtyard of Caiaphas's quarters. Maybe he could see something, maybe he would be able to hear some news. And I had about that much courage, and I followed it at an even farther distance, standing back here in the shadows, and I was watching Simon watch what was happening up here. And while Simon was standing there, warming his hands around a campfire and trying to be as inconspicuous as possible, a servant girl comes up to him, and, and she says, I think he's one of Yeshua's followers. Now, she wasn't even saying anything to Simon, but Simon felt like he had to defend himself. And he says, I don't even know the guy. So, but he was a little bit scared, so he leaves the campfire and the, and the light, and he goes back into the shadows, and it wasn't long before another servant comes, and she says, yeah, I think this was the guy following the, the person from Nazareth. And, and he lost it. He, he swore with an oath, and he said, he, he just basically denied it. But even as he's standing back there, several other men come around him, and they say, you're not fooling anybody. We can tell by your accent that you're from that area. You have to be one of his followers. Simon flew into a rage, and I heard him use words that I hadn't heard him use since he left the fishing boats. I won't repeat all of the words he said here in mixed company, but he said, I don't even know the man. And as soon as the words came out of his mouth, you could see his face turn ashen. He remembered what Yeshua had said just a short time ago. He did betray Yeshua three times. And you know what happened next. The rooster crowed. And as soon as Simon heard that, he turned and he ran, sobbing bitterly. The next events, they're very difficult to retell, but I'll do my best. It was Friday morning, and they, they brought Jesus to the Roman governor, and they said, we have found this man guilty of blasphemy, but we can't condemn him. See, they, they have their own rules according to Jewish law, but under Roman rule, they don't have the right or the power or the authority to condemn anyone, let alone give a sentence. So they're bringing him to Pontius Pilate, and he doesn't give a rip about blasphemy. He doesn't care that they found him guilty of breaking a Jewish law. So he starts asking questions that are more political in nature. And finally, he gets around to asking, are you the king of the Jews? And Yeshua said, it is as you say. And the religious leaders, they lost it. They could smell blood at this point, and they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. He's admitted that he's guilty of insurrection. 
Pontius still doesn't think that, that this is that big of a deal, but he realizes that he's trapped at this point. And then he remembers this custom where they can release a political prisoner, one political prisoner, every year about this time. And the idea behind it is to make sure that there aren't any riots that go on. So he tries to think of somebody who is so despicable that they would never want him released. And he says, okay, I can release uh, Yeshua to you, or I can release Barabbas, who was a notorious convicted murderer. And before he could even finish saying the name, they're yelling, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Well, he's stuck now. He has to pronounce the condemnation, and he says it's going to be crucifixion. The first thing they do is they take Yeshua, and they take off his outer garments, and they tie his hands together, and then they bring them over his head and tie them to a post. And they've, they've got this, this whip. It's probably about this long with a handle and leather thongs on it, and at the end of each one of those is this lead ball. And they found not only the strongest, but the cruelest of the Roman soldiers. And they give this whip to him, and they say, go to town. And so as Yeshua is bent over, exposed, unable to move, he starts wailing into him as hard as he can. And at first those lead balls are just making these deep bruises and then it's gouging into his skin. And as it does that, the blood is starting to ooze out of these wounds. But as he continues to whip and whip, it's now the blood is beginning to spurt out of the wounds. And then soon, his skin is just hanging from his back like ribbons. And the Roman leader, the guard's leader said, we've got to stop. He has to be crucified. We can't have him die right here while we're flogging him. So they stopped and they untied him. And that's when the humiliation began. They thought they'd have a little fun with this prisoner. His crime was being king of the Jews. Okay, let's put a robe on him. And let's put a stick in his hand like it's a scepter. And then the worst part, they found these vines with these, these long thorns, hard pointy, thick thorns on them, and they plated it into the shape of a crude crown, and they put it onto his head, <clears throat> and they banged on it with a stick, pounding those thorns into his skull. And then the mocking began, and, and they pretended to bow down and say, oh, king of the Jews, mighty one. And then they did what you would never do to a, a king. They spit in his face. And some of the more bold ones, the more cruel ones, balled up their fists and punched him in the face as hard as they could over and over again. When they got tired of that, they took the scepter out of his hand. They left the, the, the crown on his head, but they ripped that robe off. And by that time, it, it had become to dry onto the, the skin, and it began bleeding again as they ripped it off. And then it was time for the execution itself. We've heard that crucifixion is the cruelest form of execution that's ever been invented by men. 
the first thing that they did was they took the cross that he would be crucified on, the crossbeam of it, and they put it behind his neck, and they tied his hands onto the sides, and then they made him carry it to the place where he would be executed. Now remember, he's probably dehydrated. He hasn't had anything to drink for, for 12 hours or so. He's been beaten. He's been bleeding nearly to the point of death. And now they're having him carry this heavy crossbeam up to the place of execution, Golgotha, the place of the skull. But it was too much. And before he was even halfway there, under the weight of it, he had fallen. And of course, his knees, as they hit the gravel and the dirt, it was ground into his knees, causing even more pain. And the leader of the soldiers was just so impatient at that point, he grabs the first guy that he sees off of the side of the road and makes him carry it the rest of the way. When they get to the place of execution, they put the the beams down on the ground and they form them in the shape of a cross and they fasten them together and then they shove Yeshua down onto it and they stretch one of his arms out this way and they take these spikes about seven inches long, bigger around than my thumb, and they start hammering them right through his wrist. And when that one was pounded all the way in, they did the same thing on the other side. And then they took his legs and they they put them together like this. And then they pounded another spike through both feet into the cross. Can you imagine the searing pain as they did that? And then they took that cross with him nailed to it and they dragged it to the spot of the execution bumping over the ground and the rocks. And when they got to the spot where there was a hole dug in the ground for the cross to be dropped in, they lifted it up, and then they raised it up, and they let it fall into the ground with a thud. And when they did that, it just ripped at the tendons and the flesh in his wrists and his feet. People don't die from crucifixion because of loss of blood. They die because they suffocate. It's so difficult to get even one breath. They have to raise themselves up as they're kind of bent down like this and push up. And of course, what it's pushing against is the nail in the feet and the nails in the wrists and the raw flesh on the back is scraping up against the splintery wood just to pull in one breath and then to sink back down. And that happens over and over again with each breath. He hung there for hours in the midday heat. The religious leaders came out to mock him course the soldiers were doing the same they were just continuing the mocking that they had done before they they pounded this this sign above his head with his guilt king of the jews and 
And then at that point, it became dark. Not dark like a cloud had gone in front of the sun, but like it's the middle of the night. And it's a new moon with just that sliver of light, and then a cloud goes in front of that. And you can barely see your hand in front of your face. It was like the Creator had turned His back on His creation. And Yeshua cried out, My God, why have you abandoned me? And when I think about that, the scourging, the humiliation, the cruelty, none of that compares if He really was the Son of God, if God the Father had abandoned him. And then soon after that, he said, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And I'm sure it was at that point that he died. I know there was more that happened. But I can't recall all of the events Because once that happened, I began to wander away. I don't even know where I went. I was just trying to make sense of it all. I started this week thinking that he was a rabbi, a good man. But now, maybe, no. But maybe he truly was the Son of God.